Listen as I read God's word. The new stone tablets. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning when you come up to Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me on the top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first one and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and the gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving the wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and the children for their sin, of the parents to the third and fourth generations. Moses bowed up to the ground and at once worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before, all of your people will do wonders never done before in any nation in all of the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Here ends the reading. Good morning. Let me invite you to open up to Exodus chapter 34 if you haven't. I'm so excited about these pew Bibles. So grab one of those pew Bibles in front of you so that you can get your eyes on the text. I'm going to be making some uh, distinct references to it. So it'll be helpful if you're actually looking at it this morning. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, my name is Matt. I serve as one of the pastors here. Looking forward to kind of getting into this text this morning with you and As Benjamin said, we're wrapping things up, so I really want to just kind of echo what he said and encourage you to take some time to think about. We've been in Exodus for for quite a while now. We've taken a little bit of a break in the middle, but uh, I hope it's been as formative for you as it has been for John and myself, really digging into some of this. It's always good to dive into some of these uh, epic Old Testament texts. So be really thinking about what, what does God want to do in me through what we've been seeing in the sermon series, and I really just want to invite you to share as we get into that next week. But we got two weeks. We got this week and next. So let's dive into it. Let's pray first, then we'll see what the scriptures have for us this morning. So Lord, we thank you that you are a God who delights in dwelling with your people in relationship. Father, as we open your word this morning, would you give us eyes to see your heart for us so that we would respond to you in worship and be compelled by the love of Jesus to see each other and our neighbors as you see them. Lord, we pray all of this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Well, no matter how familiar you are with the Bible, one of the texts I'm sure you are quite familiar with, whether you actually know the reference or not, is John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he... (laughs) 
very good, very good. You see, you are familiar with it. It's one of those kind of default verses that many of us kind of go to if we're going to summarize the, the message or the, the heart of the gospel. It summarizes the core of what we believe as Christ followers. And it's one of those few verses that, that even those who are unchurched or have very little interest in Christianity might even be familiar with. You know, you usually see at sporting events, somebody holding up a John 3.16 sign and, and somebody is going to be familiar with it there. But if you call yourself a Christ follower, this passage, John 3, 16, is essentially a description of of the heart of what we believe. But let me ask you a question. What happens when you are an Israelite and you're following the same God that we do, the God of Israel, a thousand or more years before John 3, 16 is ever written? How would you describe who God is and what God is like? See, for us, by default, I would hope when we say, what is God like? Your answer would be, God is like Jesus, right? Jesus is the fullest expression and revelation we have of who God is. But how does an ancient Israelite describe God before he comes in flesh in the person of Jesus and reveals himself in that way? What would you say if someone asked you that question? And today, as we kind of look into the text, we're going to answer that question. How would an Israelite describe what God is like and, and who he is? And as we look at the text today, we're coming to the end of the sermon series. And, and like Benjamin said, it's kind of heartbreaking because we see that, that Israel is at this moment of being in an all-time low. God has rescued them from Egypt. He has, he's taken them out and they were planted at Mount Sinai where God's glory came down and he entered into covenant relationship with them on their way to the promised land that he had promised to give to them. And yet we see that right as the covenant gets going, right before it barely even gets a chance to, to take off, they break the relationship in the golden calf incident that we looked at a few weeks back. And, and God, in his justice, says, I am going to then destroy Israel. Moses, we're going to start over with you. And Moses, as this unique leader, intercedes on behalf of the people. And we see that he has seemingly prevented, for the time being, God from destroying the entire nation. But the relationship is still kind of, how should I say it? It's uh, polluted. The relationship between God and his people is just not the same. Yes, he's not going to destroy all of them, but there's still this situation going on where they're, they're not quite on the same terms that they were on before. And the result of this polluted relationship is that God says, I'm not going to go with you into the promised land. Yes, in some sense, in his omnipresence, he's going to be with them, but he says, I'm going to send an angel with you instead of my distinct special presence. And this is not because God is going back on his promises. This is because if God were to go with them into the promised land and they continue to sin, and we see that they have a track record of doing this, that he would end up destroying them. So despite the fact that the majority of the Bible storyline focuses on God wanting to dwell with his people, and now that God will not do that because of their sin, because he is perfectly just, we see that there's a situation where God is not going to go with them. And if you looked at chapter 33, kind of in between the sermon series, we haven't covered it, but it's worth looking at here, we see that the people, they mourn this. They say, no, this God that has saved us is no longer going to be with us in the same way. And yet Moses, what we've learned is he's gone from kind of this meek guy who says, God, please do not send me. Now we see that he, he's gained a, a little bit of persistence here. He says, no, 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 
God, God, you've made a promise to us. I want you to, you to go with us. I don't want an angel. I, I want to know exactly who's going with us. I want your presence in, with us in the promised land. So he persists and he asks God and God's response is this. He says, okay, fair enough. I'll go with you into the promised land if that is what you really want. But Moses is not so sure. He wants more assurances than God just saying, I'm going to go with you. So he says this. Look at chapter 33, verse 18 with me. Chapter 33, verse 18. This is what Moses says. Now show me your glory. Now many of us might read that and say, okay, this is Moses wanting to see God in some profound and unique way. But what's actually happening is he is wanting God to give him kind of a a token of expression to show him like, you are gonna follow through on what you said, right? Your presence is gonna come. And if you show me your glory, then I will know that we're back on the same track that we were on before. And as we pick up in chapter 34 this morning where we're gonna focus, we're seeing God say, okay, Moses, I can't show you all of me. You won't survive that encounter, but I will, show you part of me. I'm going to show you part of my glory. And this is what happens. Look at the first nine verses here of chapter 34. The Lord says to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I'll write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning and come up on the mountain. Present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up. Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Let's, let's stop there and, and consider what we see. The first thing we see is this, that God reveals his goodness to Moses. God reveals his goodness to Moses. Now in chapter 33, Moses asks to see God's glory and, Mos- and, and the Lord's response to Moses is, I'm gonna have my goodness pass in front of you. So God's glory and his goodness are kind of used interchangeably here. So the first thing is God reveals his goodness to Moses. So the first part we're focusing on is what it looks like for God to reveal his glory like he said he would. So he tells Moses, you're gonna bring two stone tablets up to me this time. Because if you remember the first time, God provided the tablets and they broke them in the golden calf incident. Actually, Moses broke them as a sign that the covenant was broken. And now God says, no, you guys broke it. You now, Moses, are bringing the tablets up to me. So he has to have two tablets made. He brings them up on the mountain in obedience to God and God's presence uh, comes to dwell with him in a cloud. And this is what I want us to notice here. This is something very interesting. I wonder if, if you guys caught this. Is that the text records not what Moses saw, but what he heard. All of this is going on where Moses is saying, God, show me your glory. And the next thing we see is what Moses hears, not what he sees. 
That might be a little interesting for us to kind of to grapple with, but I think what we learn from that is that whatever is going on, as this text is being compiled, as Moses is writing Exodus, he is recording for us that it was more important for us to hear what God was like than what he saw when, uh, when God's glory partially passed by. And that might be weird for us, partially because we live in a pretty like visually oriented culture. Like we like to see things and engage with things through our eyes. We like to watch TV and read the paper and look at social media and and, and whatever we're doing. And it's not to say that these people in the ancient world were not visually oriented, but what we find when we read the Bible is the Bible is not very focused on visuals. Actually, if you see it describing something visually, you should take note, just kind of, you know, side pro tip here. Because usually the Bible describes things through explanations and actions. And that's what's going on here when we're seeing God comes to be with Moses and what is described is what Moses hears. So look with me at what Moses hears, verses six and seven. He proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. So he elaborates on the, what the name connotates about himself. The compassionate and gracious God, that God cares for his people and he's gracious in such that he, he cares for them even when they don't deserve to be cared for. It says that he's slow to anger. Some of us might be familiar with the phrase God's anger burned against Israel. That's used over and over in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible specifically. This is the opposite of that. God is enduringly patient with his people. It says that he's abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So we see that he is faithful, he is forgiving, and that he is loving. Now note with me, I've talked about this a little bit from the pulpit before, that this word love, sometimes translated steadfast love, is is the word chesed in Hebrew. And what it means is not that God wants to give you a big hug. What it means is that God wants to demonstrate his love for his people by being faithful to the covenant. It's a, a covenant loyalty to them. He's saying, I am completely trustworthy, Israel. When you think of my name, you are to think that I am completely trustworthy to the partnership we have entered into even if you do not want to be faithful to it. Then we get to the second part of verse 7. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And at that, many of us usually stop and are like, what? It sounds like on first reading that God is punishing children for their parents' sins and their grandparents' sins. But let me, let me encourage you to think of this in a different way because that's not what is being communicated here. What's being communicated here is there is no generation that God will not rightfully judge their sin. So there is no parent that sins and then that sin, that, that broken pattern of rebellion against God that pa- gets passed down to their children, that child, that, that next generation is not able to say, God, my parents sinned, you forgave their sin, I just learned this pattern from them, so you can't blame me for what I'm doing. It's no, God thoroughly judges every single generation for the sins that they commit. There is no sin that is being put on someone that they haven't done. It is sins that God is being thoroughly just in judging for each and every generation, no matter what is happening here. So does that make sense for you? I want to make sure we have some, some clarity on what's happening. But, but friends, this whole verse 6 and 7, this is what they call in the scholarly world the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. This 
phrase, this, this declaration of who God is, is described again and again in the Old Testament scriptures, whether it be in Jonah or Joel or Nehemiah or the Psalms or wherever it is, whenever God's people, the ancient Israelites, want to come back to who God is, they come back to this. This is the foundational declaration and description of who God is and what he is like. And if we're going to summarize it in kind of two parts, this is how I want us to summarize it. That God is merciful and God is just. You know, when you get to the end of a sermon series, you kind of feel like you start repeating the same themes and things again and again. But I think this is worth reiterating for us time and time again, that God is merciful and God is just. We see this broken down in the text. He is loving, he's gracious, he's abounding in love and faithfulness, he forgives sin, so he's merciful, and yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So God is just. And thankfully, as we look at this, we don't really have to think about how Moses would have responded because the text tells us exactly how he responded. It says he was led to worship. He was led to worship by the beauty and the profound nature of who God is. And this is where it gets interesting because you see this conflict going on in Moses' heart as he's talking to God. You see on one hand that he has this intense desire for God's presence to go with them. He says, we need you with us. And yet over here, he's begging God to forgive the people. So the conflict we see is that he wants God's presence, and yet he understands that God's presence poses a potential danger to Israel because of their sin. So he's, he's wrapped up going, God, please go with us. But if you do, you need to forgive us. Because if, if you don't forgive us, if you are not merciful and just, just, then we're going to have some bigger problems down the road here. And this is a moment where I think we need to take a step back and reflect and just come to grips with who God is. That he is both merciful and just. He is not either or. He is both equally, both perfectly, and both of them are good. And I, I fear that sometimes it's easy for us to value either his justice or his mercy depending on how it benefits us. Let me give an example. It's easy for us to enjoy God's mercy when we know that we have forgiveness from sins in Jesus. But it is not so easy for us to enjoy God's mercy when God asks us to forgive someone that has really wronged us and hurt our feelings. It's also nice to watch God pour out the consequences of somebody's sin upon them as his just judgment, but it's not so fun when you're the one receiving the consequence for the sin, is it? And yet, the biblical message is something different. It's that God's mercy and justice are both to be equally celebrated because they are both right and necessary, and it's on those, as we get to the gospel at the end this morning, we'll talk about this, it's on those two things that we stake our hope upon who God is. So look with me now at the second part now. We see that God had revealed his goodness to Moses, and now we see that God's goodness is partially demonstrated to Moses. If you see that word partially, and it makes you say, okay, what, what's he getting at? I'll, I'll get to it here in a minute. But look at verses just 10 to 14 with me, where God reveals his goodness partially to Moses. He demonstrates it. Then the Lord said, I'm making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. 
be careful not to make a treaty. That, that word is also covenant. Be, be, be careful not to make a covenant with those who live in the land where you're going or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. So one of the themes that we've seen kind of throughout the book of Exodus as a whole is that, God, uh, that Moses intercedes for Israel with God. And we're kind of seeing that play out again. So after Moses intercedes, he says, go with us, please, God. But if you do, please forgive us. We see that God obliges to that request and he takes them back into relationship. But I don't want us to overlook the weight of this moment the weight of what it's like for them to come into this restored relationship with God. Almost everyone in this room, I'm sure, knows what it's like to be in a, a conflict with someone, whether that be a, a friend or a, a spouse or, or a child or, or, or whoever it is, and, and you're kind of butting heads, you have this tiff, you're going at it for a little while, and then eventually you, you make up. There's, there's forgiveness extended. But a lot of us know that the, the forgiveness can be extended via our lips, but there's still the, this moment that we wait for, whether it's an action or it's what somebody says that, that assures us from, from one party to the other that, that, okay, we're on the same page, everything's okay, we're back on track. You can extend the forgiveness and still be waiting for that expression of, no, 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 we're, we're good, we're back how we were before. Because it's easy for us to forgive and not really totally reconcile. And what Moses is looking for is total reconciliation. And as God says, I'm making a covenant with you, this is the sign to Moses of, we're out of the woods. You are not going to destroy this nation. In fact, you're taking us back to yourself. Now observe with me now that this is not a new covenant that he's making. For those of us are, that, that are understanding of kind of new covenant theology, you know, Jeremiah 30, 31, that's not this. God is bringing them back. He's reinstating the covenant that he had originally made with them with the exact same expectations. He says in verse 11, obey what I command you today. And this is important for this reason because it shows us that God's forgiveness of Israel doesn't exempt them from now obeying him. God's forgiveness of Israel doesn't exempt them from now obeying him. He forgives them, and now his expectation is that they are going to obey. So he calls them to obey the same covenant stipulations, the same commandments, if you will, that they were in before. If you continue through chapter 34, the part where we're not going to cover, you'll see that much of the Ten Commandments and the law is reiterated to them. He's reminding them, this is what I expect of you now that I have forgiven you. And then he goes on to say, and you have to destroy all of the religious paraphernalia in Canaan and I'm going to drive the people out. And usually that's when people say, what? Like, wh what, what are you talking about? Like, I see you've forgiven them. I see that you've called them to obey, but, but to drive the Canaanites out is a lot different than thou shalt not covet or thou shalt not lie. This is a whole extra thing that God is bringing up to the people that causes many of us to pause, especially for those of us who maybe are, are not super familiar with the scriptures. Maybe for some of us, that seems a little bit uh, inconsiderate. They're destroying other people's property as they go into Canaan. Maybe for some of us, it seems a little bit uh, intolerant of these people's belief systems, but, but let me give you a reason why God is, is telling them to do this, and it's this that God is thoroughly, as the text says, jealous for his name and for his people. You see, God is like the perfect spouse 
the one who cares intimately, and he knows when that spouse strays, his people Israel, he, he has feelings that, that well up. He is jealous for them. He wants the best for them, and they're not going to receive the best if they are falling into worshiping these false gods. And as the greatest possible being, he deserves the worship of all peoples, including these Canaanites who's about, who's about to drive out. And if they continue in the pattern that they are in, they are never going to experience the goodness that God might have for them. And as his special possession, Israel, God desires especially the very best thing for them. And they are not going to inherit the abundant life, and they're not going to fulfill their mission if they are wrapped up in worshiping these Canaanite gods. And and let me just say as as another side note, the, the mission of God here is not just to bless Israel. Right? They are not just saved to be saved. They are saved so that they might be a blessing to the other nations, including Canaan. And if they get wrapped up in worshiping gods other than Yahweh, they will never bless those other nations that God is driving out. So we see that it's in everybody's best interest that they are going in there and that these false worship practices are no longer allowed to continue. And as we think about Israel's history, here's another thing that we should keep in mind is we're about to leave Mount Sinai, right? They've been here for a year. God has made this covenant with them. They broke it and now he's bringing them back into covenant relationship with them. And they're they're leaving Mount Sinai and they're gonna start heading towards the promised land. That's what God says in chapter 33. Now, if you remember the golden calf incident, there was no outside influence on them. Moses goes up on the mountain and after 40 days, they freak out and they make a golden calf. Now imagine they're about to enter into Canaan where there's thousands of golden calves and everyone around them is doing it. Are we to expect that they are not gonna fall into temptation? Of course not. And so what we're seeing is that God making provision for them by driving these people out so that Israel can in the long term bless them, this is an extension of God's grace, not just to Israel, but to all people because they're going to not just face internal threats like they did at Sinai. If these people do not leave, they're going to face real external threats that are going to detract from God's love and his expression of that love for all the nations. Now, let me bring us back to this point that God's goodness is partially demonstrated, this, this idea of partially. We talked about that God's goodness can be summarized as it's put in this passage in two ways. What were they? God, God is merciful, and what was the other one? God is just. God is merciful and God is just. Now we see God's mercifulness, his, his mercy very clearly in the text. We see he forgives Israel. He says, okay, I'm entering into a covenant with you. I'm going to overlook your sin. But here's the question. Where is God's justice in the text? Where does God's justice lie? Because God's mercy is not just. Have you thought about that? God's mercy is not just. Those are two different things. Mercy is when God overlooks their sin and what they've done. Justice is when God holds them accountable to the consequences of their sin. So the question is, how can God overlook Israel's sin and forgive them and still claim to be just? Because he's claiming to be both, and we've seen one. But how is he just if he is overlooking their sin? Even in our world, we, we have this understanding that someone has to pay when there is something wrong that happens. So who's going to pay for Israel's sin when this happens? And, and let's extend that, that metaphor to ourselves. How is it that God is able to forgive any of our sins? How can God overlook any of our sins at all and still claim to be just? 
I want to read you a a passage from Romans chapter 3. The first part you're probably very familiar with. The second part maybe a little bit less so, but it kind of gives us some clarity here. Paul says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now this is the part where I want us to pay attention. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement So he's the sacrifice that covers the sin through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now listen carefully. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, his patience, he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, the time of Christ's coming, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. He does this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his patience, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Israel's sins. And how did he deal with it? Well, the text is very clear. The answer to the question of how God can forgive Israel and forgive us and still remain just is built into what Paul is saying here. He says that God is able to forgive Israel in the exact same way that he is able to forgive us. By taking all of that justice by taking all of that wrath, all of the consequence that we deserve, that Israel deserved for the things that we have broken and done wrong, for all of the things that we have rebelled against God, by taking all of that and pouring it out on Jesus on the cross. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the place where God's mercy and justice meet in the person and work of Jesus. In Jesus, we see God takes on flesh as the only one who could live a sinless life and he doesn't do it for his merit, but for ours. Because when he goes to that cross and God pours out his wrath on him and he dies, he is receiving the penalty that we and Israel deserve and we in turn receive that which we do not deserve. God's grace and forgiveness and acceptance. And as Jesus is raised from the dead, we find that we have assurance for the payment, that uh, we have assurance that the payment for our sin, Jesus' life, was accepted by God the Father. We have to recognize that God's goodness is demonstrated at the cross of Christ, where his mercy and his justice perfectly meet. When we look at the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, where God says he is just and he is mercy, it poses a tension because he is interacting with severely broken and sinful people. And so the tension carries itself all the way to the cross, where we see the mercy of God extended to us and the justice of God poured out on the Son. Maybe you're here and you might not call yourself a Jesus follower, or maybe you're here, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or you're, you're not so familiar with some of the stuff we've been talking about. This is the thing that I need you to hear, is that the Bible is very clear that apart from Jesus, we are all abiding under the right, just wrath of God. Even now, it says it, says it presently. It's not that we will, it says that we are currently experiencing that. And yet the good news is that in Christ, we have the most profound demonstration of justice and mercy that has ever been. And as we trust in Christ, God's promise to us is that we are forgiven and that we experience the eternal good life that God has for us. And for those of us who are Christians, those of us who are following Jesus, this is the question as we think about Israel's interaction with God here in the text. This is the question I wanna pose to us. Is does Christ's work lead you to deeper obedience. 
Because if God was only just, we would have no opportunity to obey. We would be wiped out. But God is just and merciful. And as a result of that mercy, we have the privilege of obeying him. Do you see that? that we, we oftentimes, my fear is that we think about God's forgiveness as the end of the road. We think about, okay, we've been for, forgiven for Christ's sake. That's where it ends. I'm forgiven. We're good. But that's not how the Bible talks about it. The Bible says, yes, forgiveness in Christ is good and it's something that we should celebrate. And yet the Bible talks about it as that is just the beginning of a beautiful journey where we are forgiven and as a result, we then obey. And as a result, we experience the abundant life that God has for us. So just like you know, God's mercy gave Israel here the opportunity to obey again as he entered into covenant with them, we have the privilege to obey because of what Jesus has done. That's what Paul means in Romans 2 where he says, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. God extends mercy and kindness and the result is that we repent. We don't repent because we're trying to earn the mercy. It's given and then we repent and we follow Jesus. The mercy of God in Christ is not simply for us to feel better about our standing church. That's not what it's only for. Yes, we have our consciences cleared because of what Jesus has done, but it's more than that. God's forgiveness is the vehicle to motivate us to a deeper life of obedience. And now we're watching Israel kind of play this out, and as we continue the story, we're gonna see how did this actually play out for Israel as we finish up with Exodus next week. But as we think about the goodness of God, demonstrated in both his justice and his mercy. I want to encourage us, just take a moment to reflect on that and, and the cost of God by sending his son to be the one through whom mercy would be extended and on whom justice would be demonstrated, sent on our behalf. And I want to just give us a moment to reflect on that and then we'll close with prayer. Merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought and in word and in deed. By the things that we've done and by the things we left undone, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart and our mind and our strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, it's so easy for us at times to try and justify ourselves, to try and say, what I'm doing is, is not that bad, or this thing that I did, it's, it's really not that bad. And yet, Lord, what your word says is it's an offense to you. It is an abomination before your goodness and before your justice. And Lord, we know that we are perfectly deserving of your wrath. And yet, as we look at your word this morning, we see that you are a God who not only uh, demonstrates justice, but extends forgiveness because you are patient with us and because you have sent your son for us. Lord, would you help us not to look upon Jesus as our, 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 uh, our excuse to sin more, but would you help us to look upon Jesus and say, may I never sin again? Would you help us to look upon Christ and say, every time I am rebelling against you, every time I'm walking in disobedience, it's as if I am putting Christ back up on that cross Help us to see the payment that Christ has paid on our behalf with more clarity than ever before. And Lord, help us to respond in worship. Lord, in your mercy, forgive where we have been. 
Lord, help us to amend what we are by your spirit. Would you cause us to be a holy and obedient people, not because we're trying to, to earn a place before you, but because we know what you have done for us. Lord, help us to do this so that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And all God's people said, amen.